Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Well, as we think about the goals of this podcast, one of the things that we want to do each time we get together and, and have these conversations is we want to help the local church. And so as we think about investing or encouraging, edifying the local church, we want to talk about something today that's probably a little bit off the radar for a lot of people. I don't know that, that it's necessarily off the radar for those who are uh, G3 junkies, so to speak, or those who are you know at the heart of G3 and actively attending G3 on a regular you know year-to-year basis. But there is a subject that we need to talk about today that I think is at the heart of what it means to be a healthy church, and it's the subject of church discipline. So as we think about church discipline, I want us to talk about, you know, if you just go back and read from, say, theologians and scholars throughout church history, they would actually talk like this. They would make statements that, in order to identify whether or not a church is an authentic church, there needs to be three primary marks, the right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the ordinances or the sacraments. And then the third would be the practice of biblical church discipline. So in other words, if you hold to that statement, if that statement is true, then if a church is not actively engaging in the practice of biblical church discipline, then it wouldn't pass the test as an actual church. So what do you think about a statement like that? Yeah, no, I think I I agree with it. I think um, it's spot on according to uh, what Christ says in his word regarding the church. Um, But you're right. It's it's also an issue that so many churches have have been avoiding. And I think, you know, if you hear... um, uh, or if you listen to these marks and you see the right preaching, the right administration, the practice of biblical church discipline, they're all kind of um, together. They 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 overlap with one another because the right preaching of God's word is going to result in uh, subsequently practicing uh, the ordinances properly and and following through with church discipline. As difficult as the issue of church discipline is, and as as heartbreaking as it can be to to conduct. I absolutely agree that churches need to be upholding these elements and more, but but the basic elements of a biblical church. Um, and so, yeah, as we as we touch this subject, Josh, I know as a pastor, I approach this um, with with a pastor's heart. I know you do as well. You've had to walk through situations, and I think um, we should talk about some of those experiences um, and and what we've learned pastorally and, and, um, as we've, as we've followed Christ's command in the church, but I think we should kick off the conversation probably where, um, Christ kicks it off in the new Testament in Matthew 18, um, and, and just answer the basic question, what is church discipline? Mm. Um, so, so why don't you kick us off brother and, and take us to, to Matthew 18 and let's walk through it. Yeah, I think that that would be very helpful. So, so let's just uh, let, let's just read the text. Let's just open our Bibles and read from Matthew chapter eighteen, beginning in verse number fifteen. 
and then let's talk about the process itself, what church discipline looks like. Because again, for those that might be new believers or perhaps uh, uh, just new to this podcast and their church setting is not actively engaging in church discipline, it might be a bit of a foreign concept. But this is not something new at all. In fact, Jesus himself commands us to engage in church discipline. So I'm just going to read the text from from Matthew chapter number 18. And this is what this is what the text of scripture says. It says and again this is Jesus speaking. He says if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then it goes on and says in verse number 18, it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, this next verse is a verse, Jeremy, that you and I have heard, many have heard, so ripped out of context. In fact, both of these verses, verse 19, the one I just read, and verse 20, and we'll talk about that perhaps just a bit here, but here's verse 20, how how this context is concluded, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, that's interesting because you and I have heard that verse misquoted, misapplied, perhaps on a Sunday morning in a Sunday school setting where the teacher on a cold Sunday morning, perhaps light snow on the ground and only about four people showed up in class when there should have been maybe 25. And then he said something like, well, you know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we find comfort in the fact that God is among us today. That's not actually an appropriate use of that verse, right? So what would you say about that? Yeah, I think we need to we need to have a proper hermeneutic and when we approach scripture, we need to approach scripture in its context, right? Just like mm-hmm. if I write you a letter or or I guess send you a text, um you're going to want to read that my words within the context of of my other words. Mm-hmm. And so to rip one sentence out of the the rest of the sentences around it, is a bad hermeneutic. It's a popular hermeneutic, uh, nonetheless. Yeah. But we just simply uh, need to read the sentences before and after, and to see and understand what what Christ is saying. And it's so so if so if you show up to church early on Sunday morning and you're all alone in that room waiting on everyone else to show up, is God there? Yeah. So that's the question. Yeah. You know, I I, I don't. Um, I I see the truth in what many say when they the way take that out of context because God is everywhere. I mean, God is, and He is with His people. And I would say, when the people of God gather together expressly for the purpose of worship, there is a special meeting of the Lord. Sure. Um, so so it's not heresy. But the the problem in using this verse 
is simply that's not what this verse is teaching. This yeah. verse is explicitly in the context of a very sober, very serious matter of of handling as a church uh, the a person's soul and mm-hmm. the discipline of a soul. And we can talk about 1 Corinthians 5, and that just gives even greater or or just elucidates the sobriety of this mm-hmm. act. And so we need to be careful. God is everywhere. He's with us. We understand that. Um, but we need to be careful that we're using God's word in for the purpose he gave it to us in the context in which he gave it to us. Yeah. And so then you back up to the previous verse, when you look at what the other, uh, the, the, the verse says there in verse number 19, which is another one that's cherry picked often. And it says, yes. again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Wow. I mean, so like, this past week, I'm in London and I walk out of my hotel and there's a canary yellow Lamborghini parked on the side of, on the sidewalk there. And my son sees it and we went over and he wanted to get a picture made. So if you take what many people say about that verse, if, if we use that hermeneutic, then my son and I could have just agreed that we should have that Lamborghini and God would have gifted it to us right there in the streets of London. Right. Did you? Well, we did not <laughs> because we you know, what the ver- <laughs> we know what the verse means. Right. Again, as yeah. you mentioned earlier, context is key. So we need right. to read the verse within its context, right? It's remarkable. This, this passage, as we're looking at it, so many of these verses, 18, 19 and 20, are in different ways ripped out of context and applied incorrectly. And you even look at verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Um, and the use of the that the Roman Catholic Church has has placed that upon the priest and this power to um, forgive sins. And mm. so you look at these verses and we need to understand that what's being spoken of here is the command by Christ to the church, the the local church, to enter or to welcome into the church, brothers and sisters, and to excommunicate out of the church, mm-hmm. those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ in their life, who refuse to repent of sin. Mm-hmm. Anything as anything else, as we take this out and say, look at that sentence, my goodness, I can use that to get anything I want. The prosperity preachers, your your example, as as silly as it sounds, really isn't that outlandish. Um, that's what people I've heard people use that verse for very outlandish things, and then claim they say they claim the promise, so it will come to pass because you and I agreed about it. Yeah, um, you can get into all sorts of absurdities. This is not talking about you fulfilling your individual whimsical fantasies. This is talking about the authority that the local church has in excommunicating an unrepentant member from its midst. And that authority, echoing back to verse 18, is is simply validating what has already been conducted in heaven. This is simply the church giving its stamp of approval upon a spiritual reality already Mm -hmm. condoned in heaven. 
Yeah, and so again, the the mention twice here in this very passage about two or three is simply something that's flowing out of the law because you see Jesus as he's as he's speaking here to the the the, the people here uh, in, in the New Testament setting, he is referencing something from the law, this principle of two or three witnesses, because in order to stone someone, in order to put them to death under the death penalty, there had to be this this charge established in the presence of two or three witnesses. So that concept was very much a known concept among the Jewish people. But as he references here, the church, which was, again, as we hear the word church, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking in terms of church history. We have a lens that we're looking through when he's speaking here. Again, the the gathered church. It, it was a, it was a it was something that was a bit new, and and yet at the very same time, that gathered assembly, that idea of authority and accountability as it pertains to sin is is critically important to think about. So. So let's talk about this passage, and then we can reference 1 Corinthians 5, as you've already done, or Titus, other places in, in the scriptures. But I think the foundation of 1 Corinthians 5 and these other passages stand upon what Jesus said here in Matthew 18. So let's just pick this, this process apart, if we could, and talk about what it means to work through biblical church discipline. So you might be in a church setting where you might not have actually witnessed the excommunication of someone in a number of years, or perhaps if you're a new believer, you've you've not witnessed it at all at this point. But that doesn't mean that church discipline is not actually being practiced within that church, because again, excommunication is the final step or the final stage right. in the process. So as we look at Matthew 18, what's the first step as far as the process itself? Yeah, so Josh, I think you can attest to this. Um, the first step is probably the most neglected step. Mm. I, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I would have the meeting where somebody sets up a meeting with you. Often it's urgent. Pastor, I need to speak with you. So you set the meeting and you sit down and you realize within the first few minutes, somebody sinned against the person that wants to speak with me. And they are asking me, how do I deal with this? What do I do? Oftentimes, they're asking me, what should I do as the pastor? Or they're trying to say, here, pastor, you deal with this. I saw this person do this. I heard them say this. Um, so I just want you to know so you can deal with this. And it is one of the most repeated meetings, uh, bits of counsel that I would give pastorally is, hold on, don't say their name. Don't tell me what they've done. You need to go back to them, you and them alone, and tell them what you desire to tell me. You don't need me in this process yet. Now, as a young Christian, oftentimes as a pastor, we know we have young believers come because they, they don't even know this process. And so the first time you're explaining it to them, when this when somebody sins against you, you out of love, motivated, driven by love, you go to them and you share that with them. And, and Josh, the great temptation, and for our listener, this um, if you've been tempted this way, I'm, I, it's a temptation I think we all face. 
we go to the pastor and say, here, pastor, you deal with it. The pastor says, no, actually, according to Christ's words in Matthew 18, you need to deal with it by going back to them. You know what the temptation is? Ah, uh, forget about it then. I'll just yeah. drop it. It's, yeah. I thought the pastor was going to take it. It's too uncomfortable for me. I'll just look over it. Mm. Yeah, well, once upon a time, Jeremy, the, the, the most quoted or well-known Bible verse in the world was John 3.16. But really, in our current culture, the most quoted verse is actually Matthew 7.1. Judge not, and it's usually not. It's usually not quoted in in totality. It's just judge not, you know, or you shouldn't judge, and and that's the idea uh, that that's so prevalent in our culture today is this idea that we just should not be judging other people. But yet the Bible actually tells us as believers that we should be judging one another. We should be holding one another accountable. There's this idea of examining the fruit in one another's lives, right? Yeah. So Matthew 7, I mean, Jesus, several verses later, goes on to refer to people as pigs Mm, and dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Wait a second. That's a pretty harsh judgment. Uh, The the call of Matthew 7-1 is not, don't judge anything ever, a virtual impossibility. It's a call for right judgment, non-hypocritical judgment. Uh, It's a call for loving judgment. And within the confines of the local church, we are called to judge in love. Now, you you need to take the log out of your own eye, Mm. and, and you need to be living confessionally and humbly before the Lord, seeking to live a holy and pure life. But it's a matter of loving your brother or sister when they sin, going mm-hmm. to them and telling them and and sharing, motivated by nothing other than love in doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really, Josh, what, as we walk through this and this whole subject of, of uh, church discipline and excommunication is, as we walk through the process, we can't forget the the underlying motivating factor next to the glory of God. Of course, all we're doing is for the glory of God and the purity of his bride. But the next motivation for the Christian is a motivation of loving our brothers and sisters. Mm. How how would you say that this whole process is driven by love? Because it's kind of a interesting dynamic because the process of discipline, the process of excommunication seems so harsh and seems so strict. It seems incongruent with love, mm-hmm. but how would you say this is driven by love? Well, I would say it's driven by love in the sense that, you know, if I love my daughter, but she's running, you know, into the road, for instance, as a young child to, you know, that would uh, jeopardize her health, then I'm going to call out to her and confront her so that she would be spared from injury. Or if I'm on a beach and I'm enjoying a nice vacation with my family. My kids are playing in the surf, and you have you know a shark that's that's seen out in the water. Then I would want someone to stand up and boldly announce that there's danger, right? And so the idea that we should not judge or we should not point out fault and that sort of thing is really contrary to the teachings of Jesus. It's contrary to the teachings of Scripture. And so if we really love someone, we will tell them 
we will point out their error because it's leading to danger, which could, quite frankly, it could be detrimental to their marriage or their family or their future. And so we want to warn them in love. I think that that's the loving thing to do. The most unloving thing to do would be to just remain silent. Right. And it's right there in the text, isn't it? Verse 15. Yeah. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Mm, yeah. What a wonderful victory. I mean, mm-hmm. wh- what more would you want to gain? You've gained a better reputation. You've mm-hmm. gained victory in this argument. You've gained a better status in the church as having proven this man was a sinner. What, what do you want to gain other than your brother? He, he, was, he was walking in sin, and you lovingly brought that to his attention, and he listened, and he repented. That's not a time for showboating. It is a time for showboating for the person who is motivated by pride, but it's not a time for showboating by the one who's motivated by love, because all you ever wanted was for him to repent. And he mm-hmm. has. What a glorious yeah. outcome. Yeah. But if he doesn't, mm-hmm. then we go to step two. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's a process, right? So you have uh, this goal. The ultimate goal is not retaliation or revenge, but it's restoration, both vertically and horizontally. But again, as you mentioned, if in that meeting he says, look, you know, look, I, I'm just not interested in listening to what you have to say. Or he rejects the counsel. He he ignores it and he continues to persist in ongoing sin. Then then step two says that you take one or two with you, one or two others. This is verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Once again, this is this idea that's flowing out of the law, that there needs to be uh, the charge needs to be established before witnesses, which again would talk about that in verse 20 and also verse 19, that idea of agreeing together or where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So even before you get to the gathered church, when it's a private confrontation that's now been made a bit more public with two or three witnesses in a living room or over coffee at a coffee shop, we see that, that that we have the special presence of Christ there in that meeting because you are caring for the soul of that individual that you're confronting, that there's a spiritual rebuke that's taking place. And so this process is, is very important as we think it through. And wonderfully, in my experience, I know in the experience of many brothers, many, many uh, pastors, um, there are a lot of step twos that end in step two, where that those initial meetings between you and the brother alone, he just wasn't listening, or the sister just wasn't wasn't wanting to to see your point or or agreeing with it. But there's a sobriety that comes when there's a gathering and there's three of you in the room. And the express purpose is, it's almost, I think some people might understand the terminology of an intervention, where there's this gathering of people I care about, and they're here for the express purpose of pointing something out in my life. Um, It's a powerful experience. 
it's not a fun experience. I, I don't think I've ever gone into one of those meetings giddy and just, I can't wait for this meeting. It's sobering. But more times than not, by the vast number, we've left those meetings with a repentant brother or sister. And the process has ended yeah. at step two because it does shake them awake and go, okay, not only are you telling me, Jeremy, but now you're telling me and you're telling me. And the three of you are in one voice. There's got to be something I'm missing here because three of you whom I love and trust are, are, are singing the same tune. Yeah. I've got to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's there's certainly more to the process. If if that doesn't happen, if there's not restoration and repentance in step two, then we go beyond step two. A number of years ago, I was pastoring a church in Tennessee, and there was a, a family that came to our church. They were broken. They were very discouraged. And they told me the story. It was a, it was a heartbreaking story about how they had visited uh, our church simply because of the fact that they were kicked out of their church. And that was the language that was used. And I, I, you know, I asked them, I said, well, what do you mean that you were kicked out of your church? And they said, well, we went into to worship on the Lord's day and we were seated there in the sanctuary, the worship center. And, and the pastor came to the microphone and he announced that they were excommunicating a family from their church and they called their name and it was a total surprise to them. They had not been forewarned. There was nothing of that nature. And yet they said that the reason that they were excommunicated was because of the fact that they had embraced the doctrines of grace. And this family was just simply booted from their church suddenly without any prior warning. There was no knowledge that that was going to happen on that day. And it was a massive blow to them. So we ended up welcoming them into our church and, you know, just tried to care for them and to love them through that process as they were trying to heal from that. But but as we're talking about discipline and we've arrived at the at the process of, of now bringing it beyond step two to the, to the church as a whole, we could certainly agree that that was not the way to handle that family, right? So what happens if you confront someone with, you know, a sin that they're continuing to persist in and yet they, they don't listen to you in private, they don't listen to you with witnesses, now what do you do according to the text? Yeah, according to the text, there's an outline of telling it to the church, verse 17 tell it to the church. But then notice the second line, if he refuses to listen even to the church, what's that telling us? It's telling us that the church then implores the sinner mm. to to repent. So yeah. the telling it to the church, I think people can certainly in the situation you're describing, they botched it, but I think it, it may be commonly misunderstood that the telling it to the church is the excommunication. Yeah. No, that's the final step before the excommunication where you're telling it to the church for the purpose of the church to then collectively, on an individually, whenever you're seeing this person, to reach out to them for the purpose of calling them to repentance. 
Yeah. So, so now, if- yeah, just, just, I was just going to say it's now this overwhelming experience of, okay, this one brother or sister was sitting down with me. And then that brother or sister brought a few more and were sitting down with me. I remember those meetings. But my goodness, now all of the brothers and sisters in this church are coming to me. They're sending me a text. They're saying, hey, can I get a coffee with you? They're coming over to my house. They're meeting. They're inviting me over for dinner. And they're all purpose, their their expressed purposed intent is, hey, hey, you've got to turn from the sin. You've got to repent. That's an overwhelming experience. And that's what it's designed to be. Yeah. So if the person is actually in the meeting, if they're if they're seated there when when it's told to the church, then obviously the church can have that opportunity immediately, right? Right. Uh, at that very moment, to encourage, to beg, to plead with that individual to repent. But but what happens if the person is not there? If if they chose not to come to this to this meeting, this gathering of the church, where it would be told to the church, then at that point, you don't just excommunicate them from the church at that moment, there would be a process by which, as you've articulated well, that the church would send them text messages or emails or perhaps set up a time to talk over coffee and where the church can do the work of the church, which would then be what was happening in those first two meetings. It would be calling them to repentance. Right. And and Josh, we've got to remember through this whole process that we're not trying to skip through this process as quick as we can to get this person out. Um, oftentimes, this is, can be a year-long process. Right. There's yeah. not a time given, right. but it's a, it's a process of patience. And we, at one point, even as a church in, in Texas, um, we got to the final step with, with someone. And a lot of the people were already reaching out to this person. Um, the sin was well known. It was open. And I brought it before the church, um, the third and final step. People were already in the process of reaching out personally. We weren't hearing anything. There was no there was no response, positive response. And we even went to the length of writing a letter as a church. The church agreed upon the wording. We signed it as a church. We sent the letter. We then said, please respond in this next time frame, please. So you have people coming from all angles. Then you have a formal letter coming from the church saying, unanimously, please turn from your sin, giving time, being patient. And even still, the person has made up their mind, I, I will not turn from this this lifestyle. Um, and so then and only then is is the, the discipline from the church coming where, okay, now they're formally put out from the church and um, are to be considered, um, uh, uh, to be to us considered a Gentile and a tax collector, as the text says. Yeah. So again, you know, you you have this idea that the church does the work of the church, so now it's brought to the church's attention in a formal meeting, and each church, I'm sure, you know, depending on size and 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 all of this, is going to look a bit different. But there would be a, a a time when this is made known to the entire church family, and then beyond that. So again, as you've mentioned, it, it may be that. It, that this process is 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 an ongoing process over a, a year, perhaps. But it could be that this is only a month long endeavor. And I think that the sin would 
would determine yeah. that. So for instance, if it's a if it's a drug rehab scenario or an, an alcohol scenario that's going to take some time to work through, that might, you know, be a 12-month process. Right. But if it's adultery, then we're not going to be, you know, lingering for 12 months, obviously, right? Right, right. Yeah, the, of course, the severity of the sin. And and also, there are measures that need to be taken in, in our day and age, I mean, I guess throughout history as well. But um, if there are sins that are endangering people in the church, uh, where people are in, are in harm's way, um, then there needs to be actions uh, taken very swiftly. But, but regardless, um, the process Christ has given, regardless of the time, um, this is the process given to to glorify His name, to maintain the purity of the church, and to love the soul of the sinner. Mm, and yeah. even in First Corinthians five, where the shocking language by Paul of mm-hmm. hand hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, right? Paul doesn't stop there, but yeah, he goes right. on to say so that his soul may be saved. Absolutely. It's, That's it's, the goal. It, the goal is restoration, as you said at the start. So, Josh, as we close out here, um, certainly there may be pastors listening. Certainly there may be uh, leaders in churches who are saying, man, we need to get back on track and, and reevaluate how are we practicing uh, this process. But probably for the majority of our listeners, it's, it's the layman, it's the Christian seeking to be faithful, functioning in their church. Um, what advice would you give uh, for the layman going from here in terms of what impact does this have on their life and how they they obey Christ in these commands? Yeah, I would just simply state that we need to have great confidence in what Jesus actually says, that uh, discipline is a command of Christ and that it actually works. And this this command of Christ transcends culture. It transcends time. It's a timeless principle and a command of Jesus. So we must have the absolute confidence that what Jesus calls us to as a church will actually work even in a modern age like this age in which we live. And so I would just say a couple of things. Number one, if we're talking about an issue of like uh, child abuse or anything of uh, anything that falls into the category of abuse, like abuse of, of women or children or anything that's, that, that's a crime against an individual, then obviously we need to get the authorities involved immediately. Absolutely. It doesn't need to be a scenario where we're just lingering through the process of, of Matthew 18. Uh, meanwhile, uh, women or children or, or anyone for that matter is, is in danger. So we need to think critically as pastors and as church members uh, in, in those categories. So there needs to be a balance there. But I, I just want to share just with, with those who might be listening that in my ministry, over the course of the years, I have actually walked through church discipline on a, a number of occasions. And we just actually recently, unfortunately, had to walk through the process of excommunicating someone from our church. And we're actively still meeting with this individual, begging for him to repent. And so we do pray that he would be brought to a place of repentance but I can remember back to my early days. I was a, I was a pastor of a very small church uh, there, uh, just about fifty miles south of Louisville, when I was uh, attending seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I had 
been called to pastor this church. And there were deacons in this church that were, you know, had been serving as deacons for about probably 25 years or so. And here I am, the new pastor. I've been there about a year and a half to two years at this point. And there was a scenario that that happened where there was a deacon who came to me and he asked what I thought about maybe getting a, a legal separation from his wife as a result of some needs and some friction that had uh, arisen in their marriage. And quite frankly, the issue was prompted by a financial advisor who said if he were to get this legal separation, because the story is quite complex, but their spouses had had died and they met in the life of the church and they were older individuals at this time that both had adult children. They wanted to keep their estates separate. And so, uh, you know, here they are about five years into their marriage and they're experiencing some problems. And so financially, if he got this legal separation, it was going to be a benefit to him from his from his retirement package and 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 all of this so he comes to me and he asks my advice he says you know pastor i'm i'm thinking about doing this what do you think and so i you know i counseled this older brother to not do this on the basis of scripture on the basis of jesus and the church that jesus would never put his wife away he would never put his bride away in the sense of the relationship between jesus and and the church and yet he, to make a long story short, about three weeks later, he told me that he went ahead and, and did it, that he took the advice and he got the legal separation. And so I had to had to then take two other deacons with me and we went to his home and we confronted him and he welcomed us into his living room and, and he was very cordial at first, but when the time came for these other men to speak, and they and they basically said the very same thing that I had said to him and they were pleading with him to repent he became very angry i think at that moment he thought that he could maybe persuade them to be on his side since they had been serving together for about 20 or 25 years in this church and yet when they stood on the text of scripture and they called him as their brother to repent he became angry and he kicked us out of his home he said he would never come back to that church. He said he had nothing more to say to us. And so it was a very painful experience. And I remember that I got into the vehicle there. We drove back to the the, the, the little small church there, the, the church building. And we went inside and we just held hands as men and we wept and we prayed and we were begging God for him to repent. About six months would pass and I was... Uh, going up to take the pulpit to preach on the Lord's day. And I saw him seated on the very back pew of that church. And so when I finished preaching, he slipped out the back door during the benediction and he was gone. And so the next week I, I took the pulpit to preach and there he was, he was there again. And yet at the end of that sermon, he came to the front and he put his head on my shoulder and he whispered in my ear and he said, Pastor, he said, I want you to know that I've already asked God to forgive me. And today I want to ask you to forgive me. And I want to ask this church to forgive me. I've asked my wife to forgive me. 
And so on that day, he was restored as a member in our church. It was just a wonderful thing to see how how church discipline had come full circle, because in the meantime, what had happened was that we had to move forward in excommunication. And it was during that time that that I actually asked the church to, to move, to excommunicate this brother. And the, the charge was established by these men who had, who had met with me. And so the church had excommunicated him and he knew it. And, and he had said he was never coming back to that church. But yet six months passed, God had worked in his heart and he came and he was fully restored. So it was a beautiful thing to see how discipline worked in the life of this man. And and yet when I was called away from that church, he told me the day that I left that I had been the best pastor in the history of that church during his lifetime, which I, I felt was a huge statement. And I don't think it was because I was a better preacher or because I had somehow out-preached these other men. I think it was because God had used me in his life in a very special way to actually shepherd his soul. There's really nothing sweeter um, as a pastor than to, to retrieve, leaving the 99 and go retrieve the one wandering sheep, and the depth of gratitude and love in that repentant sheep's heart for the pastor who didn't ignore them, didn't forget about them, but pursued them, who lovingly cared for them, who principally cared for them, even though it was difficult. It would have been a lot easier not to walk through that process and just to kind of turn a blind eye, but the depth of gratitude and love, because that's the goal. It's the exact thing, Josh, as you're explaining that, I can't help but think of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, giving clear commands to excommunicate the unrepentant sinner. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, it seems, and most commentators would agree, that man returned and was repentant, and Paul gives instructions to the church then to welcome him back in 2 Corinthians 1, and then he describes it in 2 Corinthians 7. And and it's just this glorious full circle of of restoration that takes place when we faithfully obey Christ's commands and how to run the church in dealing with wayward sinners. Yeah. And so through the years, you know, that circumstance that 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 I walked through in those early days of ministry in my first church has always caused me to remember that God's word is true and that Jesus's command is real and that it does have this 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 effect upon the church that's that's uh, long lasting and that you know this this whole idea of church discipline is not something that some scholar just you know thought up this is Jesus's words. And so it's caused me to have a, a firm commitment to the word of God. And so I've actually seen it play out that way in other instances, even in the church where I serve now, where a man was committing adultery on his wife. And then we eventually worked through the process of excommunication, unfortunately, but he was later restored and he came back in repentance and stood before the church and confessed and was restored. So I've seen it work numerous times. But but what about yourself over in Los Angeles now? You've transitioned over there. You're you're a member of of Grace Church there. So have you seen that practiced even in the context in which you're 
you're, you're a member now. I have. I've seen um, actually several instances where uh, the church here is very faithful. Once a month with the Lord's Supper, um, that's the time that they utilize to uh, make any announcements regarding excommunication. And there have been two instances where um, both the third step was being performed, um, the church being told, and the final step of excommunication actually taking place. And though it's in an environment of, of so many people, it's a large church, um, the pastoral heart of the ones uh, announcing it, uh, it just, they just exude a love and a compassion and a patience. And so you know that this is a difficult thing for the pastor to perform, to have to announce that one of the sheep has gone wayward. And after months or a year or however long of pleading and imploring and and calling that person to repentance, they've refused, that it's finally come time to tell the church um, or to, to place them outside of the church. Um, and there's been interesting conversations that have come from that, being a larger church, um, you've got many visitors on a Sunday, and for a lot of visitors, they've never even comprehended something like church discipline. And so to see it on such a large scale of a name actually being announced and and vaguely, there's not specifics given, but a vague uh, description of, of sin and the church being told to lovingly go after the person, to, to share with them um, the word of God and to call them to repentance— um, can be can be uh, a shocking experience for someone who's never who's never understood church discipline or has never been in a setting like that. I had the opportunity just recently to sit with a visitor who who uh, communicated their shock at hearing that announcement at the end of the service, and we just walked through what God says in His Word and how loving it really is, and how much um, Christ really cares for His church and those in it. And what it means to be a Christian, it's a, it opens a, a fascinating conversation about Christianity because Christianity is not simply a profession of loving Jesus. It's a profession that needs to be accompanied by a life of following Jesus. Like John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who came to be baptized, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a necessary fruit that accompanies the profession of Christ. And so to be a part of a church means that you're claiming to be a follower of Christ, abiding by his commands. And as Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I tell you? And so it opened up a fascinating conversation about the nature of Christianity, which then led to the nature of the church. It's not just a country club. This isn't a boys and girls club. This isn't like a club you join, you know, because you're a gun enthusiast or a car enthusiast or whatever else. The church is a living body comprised of believers, all those who have been joined to Jesus Christ by faith. And Christ is the head of that church, meaning he determines how that church runs and operates. And he desires to keep the church pure. And he desires mm. to keep the church holy. And so, talking about the nature of Christianity, the nature of the church, and all leading back to the process of discipline, which is designed uh, to glorify God, to keep the church pure, and to love the wayward sinner. Uh, fascinating, mm. um, but very 
profitable. And Josh, I think the reason you and I are picking this up today is because it's a conversation that needs to be had more broadly in the Christian world. Yeah, absolutely. We think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor who said, um, and what calls itself a church, which does not believe in discipline and does not use it and apply it is therefore not a true church. I mean, when you think about that statement, that is a powerful statement. And yet I would encourage anyone who is uh, perhaps looking for a church or maybe has a job transfer, maybe moving out of state. And and I get this question often from people, you know, is there is there any way that you could help me find a, a biblical church in the community in which I'm moving to? This is usually the, the conversation that I have at some level. This is what I would say to them is that, you need to look for a church that has the right preaching of the Word of God, so takes the preaching of the Scripture seriously. And you can pretty well determine that in a couple of visits uh, and j- just how they approach the pulpit. But before you join a church, I think you need to have a conversation with the, the elders of that church, the pastors of that church, where you actually ask them, in the last 25 years, has there been any public excommunication of someone that's persisting and living in an ongoing sin in the life of that church. And if they have no record of it, that pretty well means that they're probably not practicing church discipline. So I would not join, I would never encourage someone to join a church that's not practicing church discipline because you need to be assured of the fact that if you find yourself tempted and engaging in ongoing sin, that there's going to be a church that's going to love you enough to rebuke you and to warn you and to discipline you. So don't take your family and join a church that's not going to practice church discipline. And it reveals uh, a lack of passion for the purity of Christ's bride as well. Absolutely. Um, it, it reveals, it reveals um, yeah, uh, all sorts of of issues. Um, and I would just say as, as my closing words too, is, um, we need to prayerfully and thoughtfully do our part in this process. Um, there, there are a lot of opportunities that we, to love others where we just, we just for our own comfort, avoid caring enough about someone to share with them, uh, the ways in which they've sinned. And we know love covers a multitude of sins. So we don't, um, um, nitpick, but but with a discerning and a loving heart, uh, we know there there are times when we wish someone would come come to us and and show us our faults in certain areas. We need to reciprocate and and love others enough to have those conversations where we just say, "Hey, brother, can I grab a quick cup of coffee with you?" Um, hey, I you know I don't know if I'm reading this wrong or if you meant this at all, but I just want to let you know that. You know, I'm praying for you in this area. I saw this as a little concerned. Wanted to let you know about that, um, and and talk to to the person about those issues and mm-hmm. de- desiring to lovingly bring them bring them to repentance. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good word, Jeremy. Well, this has been a great conversation today, and and we do hope that it's been profitable to you as well. Till next time, we hope that you will persevere in the faith and that you'll take seriously what we've talked about today as it pertains to biblical church discipline, which is carried out in love for the glory of God. May God bless you.